Hello everyone, welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Katie O'Neill. She is a resident in general surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Hello everyone. Um, so my name is Katie O'Neill. Um, I've been a general surgery resident now for four years, uh, two years of which were spent in research. Um, following, uh, you know, once I'm finished with my training, I'm going to be going on to a fellowship in trauma surgery. That's my plan. Uh, and my research focuses on uh, gun violence um, with a focus on uh, preventing um, or improving care for survivors of gun violence. Okay. So, Dr. O'Neill, what brought you into this specific sphere of your academic research? So, when I was in medical school, I, uh, if anyone asked me what I was going to go into, I would say uh, anything but surgery. Um, but when I went through my surgery rotation, I realized that particularly trauma surgeons um, take care of very vulnerable populations. Um, and in particular, when I was doing my uh, uh, medical school in Philadelphia, I saw a lot of victims of gun violence. And one thing that also struck me was the way that sometimes we talk about victims of gun violence. So I had a, a trauma surgery professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania who, whenever he gave a lecture on violence or gun violence, he um, basically would say normal people don't get shot or stabbed. Mm. And during my time as a medical student, I read a book called um, uh, Wrong Place, Wrong Time. Um, and that's by a physician named uh, Dr. John Rich, and in which he talks about the stigma that um, uh, kind of accompanies a, an individual who is shot, particularly young men of color when they come into uh, the trauma bay. And, and I, I saw that when I was on the wards, is that I, I noticed that a lot. Um, and in tandem with noticing kind of the stigma that people encounter, um, I also uh, uh, noticed that we really don't do much for uh, survivors of gun violence. So if someone is shot, um, through uh, interpersonal violence there, they actually are very likely to survive. So it only confers about a 15% mortality. So that means that most of the people who are shot actually survive their injury. Um, and what we know about that population of people is that they are very likely to get re-injured through violence, usually through gun violence again. So they completely recover from one gunshot wound, and within the next five years, they're about 20 times as likely compared to the general population to be shot again, uh, four times as likely to die from a subsequent gunshot wound, and then also three times as likely to be involved with the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And so... When normally what we do, or the kind of standard of care, at least when I was in medical school and since I've been in training, is that, um, you know, we don't, once we can patch people up and we send them, we take care of their gunshot wound, um, there isn't a package of services generally that helps to prevent those outcomes. Um, and for me, this, uh, this was not only an issue of we're not doing enough for our patients, but I think it's also a social justice issue as well. Uh, absolutely. Um, so that that's what brought me into this particular area of research. Um, 
And uh, and I've as I've delved into it more, I find that that's even more and more the case. Uh, so um, so that's that's what brought me here. <laughs> and so in, in the past year or two, you've been doing this research. Um, so what have you been finding out and sort of what methods and interventions um, have, have you been participating in? Yeah, so the, um, the National Clinician Scholars Program uh, really has helped me learn a bunch of different uh, research techniques. And in particular, uh, my research focuses on community-based participatory research. So I leveraged uh, relationships that the program has had for many years with uh, communities of color within New Haven. And by leverage, I just mean that I got introduced by that to them and spent more time with them. And they were kind of more willing and open to trusting me because they had had good experiences of working with scholars in the past. Um, and that really uh, kind of launched my research, uh, which is a combination of uh, sociology, ethnography, as well as qualitative research, trying to better understand um, the experience of recovery for survivors of gun violence once they leave the hospital. And that um, is on many different levels. Um, so first starting with their mental health experience, so sort of symptoms that they have when they left the hospital, but also their reactions and how uh, they view their injury, it's how, whether it changed them at all. Um, and then as well as their relationship with their own communities and the supports that they draw from their communities. And so that was the, my main uh, research project over the last two years was interviewing survivors of gun violence and trying to find out the answers to those questions. So as you mentioned, out of the work basically interfaces with communities of color. Uh, and I'm wondering, so in terms of it's services that are available or that are not available, kind of what does that look like currently in our hospital system when someone is being discharged um, from the hospital? What at all is being done? Yeah, so when, uh, so through my research, one of the things, uh, I found a few things that stood out from, uh, that, that we really didn't know or didn't realize about survivors of gun violence. Um, the first being is that there's a variety of reactions that uh, individuals express um, in basically in reaction to feeling unsafe once they go home. Uh, so many gunshot wound survivors express a disrupted sense of safety, meaning they go home and feel like they're in a place that they could get shot again, they can get hurt again, which usually the place where they got shot is is where they're currently recovering from their injury. Um, and not only uh, do, are they in that same place, but because they got shot, uh, they view themselves as more of a target from other individuals mm -hmm. uh, to get shot again. And so this fear, number one, exacerbates symptoms of post-traumatic stress, which many uh, trauma survivors have. Um, but it really impedes their recovery from that and leads, they endorse kind of risky behaviors associated with that. So number one, feeling isolated. So feeling like they needed to stay in their homes or avoid certain places. Um, and then number two, uh, many people discussed how they felt like they needed to start carrying around a gun when they didn't before. For protection. For protection, exactly. Um, and then some, some individuals also expressed that they, um, it, even bef you know, 
carrying around a gun, they were also more likely to use that gun than they would have been before. And then finally, and this was sort of um, a real eye-opener for me as well, there were also a certain subset of the individuals who felt like it was totally normal and they just went back to their daily lives and weren't even affected by having been shot. Um, and that gun violence was just such a normal part of their existence that it didn't really matter. Um, and oftentimes those were individuals that had very severe symptoms of PTSD but didn't, uh, or post-traumatic stress, but didn't, um, didn't recognize them as that disorder and really just thought that those were normal feelings that anyone in their community where there are high levels of chronic violence, that everyone had that. Um, which interestingly enough, if you look at the literature examining uh, prevalence of uh, post-traumatic stress in communities with high levels of gun violence, you find that many, many people endorse these symptoms on the order of almost 40 to 50% of people saying they have some symptoms of post-traumatic stress, which makes you feel like, well, of course someone who lives in that community then thinks that it's normal to feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what sort of services do we provide? Um, so at the moment, um, we... We, have, uh, we do have social workers that see patients when they're in the hospital, but really the hospital is where treatment ends for gunshot wound survivors. Once they get discharged from the hospital, we might have one or two follow-up visits that usually are strictly medical, but we don't try, we don't take a holistic approach right now to try and understand how we can prevent further gun violence. Um, and that's something that uh, kind of based on my research, um, as well as this has been in the works as well from a group of people at Yale New Haven Hospital, uh, we're, we're going to change that. Uh, the hospital, uh, to their credit, has um, recently started funding a uh, violence prevention program, the Violence uh, Prevention and Outreach Program, or VPOP as they call it. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, so we have two full-time social workers, and we recently hired a um, former street outreach worker. Um, so this is a, an individual who has, who's from New Haven, who has lived here his whole life, who has a history of you know, having been involved in, in gun violence, has been shot himself. Um, and he has been working for um, you know, over uh, five, ten, for about five, 10 years on preventing gun violence and interrupting gun violence in the city of New Haven. And so the hospital hired him as a, uh, a case manager um, to in, within this program to really be, which I think is a really crucial part of the program is that um, he's not someone from the hospital, he's someone from the community who has deep ties to the community and therefore is much more of a, what I call a, a credible messenger to, to, to talk to people in a way that, you know, uh, I as a, um, you know, a middle-class white woman wouldn't be able to relate. Um, so that's, that's sort of, we're hoping that this program would involve not only um, uh, kind of wraparound services, meaning referrals to uh, kind of social services that the person might not be aware of, um, but also follow-up care, um, screening uh, and uh, interventions for mental health, uh, for, for mental illness. Um, and, and to be honest, we're, we're still kind of figuring out exactly what all the services are going to be. And uh, I think that this is really just the first step because have two social workers and a case manager actually probably is not enough people to really take on this problem, but uh, this is the first step and uh, uh, 
we're going to start with a package of services and likely expand from there. Right. As you mentioned, uh, my next question was going to be about sort of mental health care, you know, thinking about like, you know, what sort of therapy options may be available like after discharge and whether that would be included as part of the sort of wraparound services. It's a really good question. And one of the problems that we have is that we don't really know the magnitude of the problem right now or what resources we would need to direct to mm -hmm. them. Um, so when a couple of years ago, uh, the surgery department did institute screening for post-traumatic stress, but found that almost all of our patients screened positive for post-traumatic stress. And from there, we didn't have a way we didn't have a, a pipeline or a, someone to refer them to that could take on that um, magnitude of burden of, of really helping and, and uh, kind of treating people for their symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Um, so uh, I think that that, you know, kind of thinking about what, what I said before, which is that in communities with high levels of, um, you know, violence that is, that's chronic, um, lots of people have post-traumatic stress. The other question that comes up in my mind, and I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist, um, but uh, in discussion with, with some psychiatrists on our research team as well, is the question whether post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, is the right term to be using, and if the techniques for that particular Diagnosis, which is a diagnosis developed largely in, you know, veterans coming home from war, um, uh, whether those techniques are as applicable to our population. Um, and furthermore, you know, if we're looking at a prevalence of, you know, people having these symptoms in the community of, you know, over 50%, um, is, are we just kind of pathologizing poverty in a way or pathologizing the problem of, of violence and saying that the individual has the problem when the problem is actually a community level one and whether instead of focusing solely on individuals we should also be directing resources to community level methods of healing um, and so that that's a a big question that um, uh, we haven't answered yet I think from our perspective for survivors of gun violence in the hospital our goal is to treat those individuals, to mm -hmm. treat victims of gun violence, starting with a smaller population than the entire trauma population, which is what we were screening before, and seeing uh, what sort of interventions would be effective. Um, my next project uh, is to pilot uh, an intervention um, called the Screening and Tool for Awareness and Relief of Trauma, which was developed. Um, start. Start, the start intervention. Yes, that's how you, <laughs> the start intervention, um, which uh, is a tool that was developed specifically for communities of color um, who, where there are high levels of violence. Uh, and it was developed basically for the average community member, but hasn't been and demonstrated to show uh, improvement in symptoms of post-traumatic stress for the average community member, but hasn't been piloted in survivors of gun violence yet. Mm -hmm. So that's my next project is to pilot that intervention and see whether we can improve um, symptoms of post-traumatic stress for our population. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, so my next question is twofold. Mm -hmm. What has been the response from the communities uh, within which you're working um, to both your research and forthcoming interventions? Uh, and the other aspect of this is what is the response of the sort of powers that be to, to the programs like FIPA? Are there any sort of policy changes or um, 
discussions taking place? Yeah, those are, those are good questions. Um, so in terms of the community response, you know, like I said, I benefited from a longstanding community that the scholars program has had with uh, different community members. Um, and, you know, there, uh, in terms of my, my research and my work and then the development of VPOP, I'd say it's largely been very supportive. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting though, and I think it's really important to highlight this, is that uh, I think that sometimes researchers and physicians, et cetera, get a lot of credit or playtime. They're, you know, uh, uh, props for, for doing something within the community. But in reality, a lot of what I've seen is that the community itself is really mobilized to try and heal uh, and to make a change in gun violence. Um, so one example is a, a group that I've been working with um, is uh, this survivors group, a survivor being someone who has a family member, a loved one uh, who died from gun violence. Um, and they are a group, a support group that from their support group um, organized and excuse me, recently got funding to create a um, memorial park for survivors of, uh, for, sorry, for victims of gun violence. And that's, uh, so they got funding from both the state and uh, the New Haven community, and then they got some private funding, and they're actually building this really beautiful uh, memorial park uh, over this summer. Uh, and that, for them, is just the first step in seeing what ways they can outreach to to youth as well as uh, individuals that live in communities with high levels of violence uh, to heal themselves. Um, and then also uh, in the city of New Haven and in the state of Connecticut, uh, there's been a project called a Project Longevity, mm -hmm. um, which is actually uh, from the perspective of the police department, which has really been focused on preventing uh, gang violence. Um, so. Uh, run by uh, here in New Haven. It's run by uh, Stacy Spell, who's a former police officer, but also a resident of uh, the West River community um, in New Haven. And they do, they have, have been doing for many, many years, a lot of really wonderful work um, uh, outreaching to at-risk youth as well as at-risk um, kind of, uh, young adults um, who uh, otherwise might be involved in gun violence to give them a different path. Um, and then finally, the Connecticut uh, Violence Intervention Program run by Leonard Jihad, uh, which does violence interruption, um, which is mediation for individuals who um, are having arguments or are at high likelihood of being shot or shooting someone uh, to kind of talk them down and prevent gun violence before it happens. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I think that my work is really just alongside all of that other work, which um, uh, which funding for those programs, I think, will, are, is very, very important to, um, to really combat gun violence because the hospital can only do so much. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and then in terms of from the powers that be, you know, I, I, I've been encouraged and excited by the amount of support that this, um, work has had within the surgery department, um, they have supported me uh, with a lot of, with everything that I'm doing, um, which is not a traditional path for a surgeon, um, 
but they really love my research. They're um, kind of funding me and allowing me to do uh, take extra time to do more research. So I'm uh, working on a PhD now for this, uh, which is a really big deal. Um, and then not only that, but uh, recently we had our surgery research day for the department and uh, they awarded my abstract on this research um, during that day. And so I've definitely felt, um, at least from the surgery department, very, very supported. And um, even though it's a little bit out of left field for surgery, uh, it's I think it's something that people see a lot of value in. Um, it also reflects sir, um, providers who have been frustrated with um, the status quo in terms of gun violence. You know, these are the, you know, the trauma surgeons are the individuals who see their patients that they patched up, you know, a year or two ago coming back in shot again, and maybe this time they don't make it. And that can be very, very frustrating for providers thinking, you know, I don't have anything to offer these individuals who are at such high risk and I don't have tools in my toolbox to make a difference um, in this epidemic. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes the way we talk about gun violence at large, like we often talk, think about mass shootings um, and not so much the sort of like everyday um, interpersonal violence that happens like with like within communities. Um, I don't know if you want to speak a little bit on sort of the nuances and how that sort how that how your work relates to policymaking from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I think when we talk about firearm injury, we look at it as if it were all one epidemic. But the reality is, is that it's multiple epidemics rolled up into one. So, for example, um, uh, suicide uh, using a gun is the largest source of mortality related to firearm injury uh, in the country. Um, is someone who attempts suicide with a gun is is very, very likely to succeed, about an 84 to 90% success rate if uh, someone uses a gun. Um, and so suicide prevention is a huge part of preventing firearm injury. Uh, my side, the kind of the my small piece of the pie of uh, interpersonal violence uh, confers a mortality of about 15%, meaning that most of the people who uh, are shot with a gun due to interpersonal violence actually survive. Um, and so when you look at those two epidemics, um, you can see that the policies that one would implement to address uh, those problems are very, very different. They're, they're widely different. Um, and yet we talk about firearm injuries that they were, it was all the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and adding into that the... Um, the issue of mass shootings as well, which actually is, you know, number one, there are multiple definitions of mass shootings, but there isn't one that anyone necessarily falls down on, and it does account for a generally much smaller uh, portion proportion of the morbidity and mortality. But I think one thing to keep in mind, though, is that mass shootings are not only about the individuals that were shot, but the ways in which that act of terror affects entire communities mm-hmm. as well as the country at large. Um, so, you know, the shooting in Parkland affects high schools across the country because no one wants to feel unsafe in school, um, you know. And and I think that that's one of the reasons why uh, mass shootings get so much more airtime or play on the media is that they are um, – 
very much more emotionally connected to every individual that lives in the country. Um, that being said, uh, it really can be a travesty um, that, you know, because the gun violence, for example, in, in New Haven or in uh, large urban centers around the country is so common and it happens on a daily basis and it happens largely in communities of color that it doesn't get the same kind of press or airtime. Um, I recently spoke with uh, a mother uh, who lost her daughter um, to gun violence in New Haven around the same time that the Newtown shooting happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in that particular shooting, her daughter was a bystander. Um, and more than four people were, were killed, uh, which technically would be called a mass shooting. But uh, at that time, because of the Newtown shooting, the media didn't call it a mass shooting. And they specifically avoided that because they felt that it wasn't, it wasn't fair to classify that as what was the same as, as the Newtown, similar to the Newtown shooting, um, which uh, to her was so painful that they didn't consider her daughter's death as... Um, Worthy of the same type of coverage. Exactly, or. exactly. And, um, and you know, I think in uh, when I speak with, um, you know, the survivors of uh, uh, mothers as well as family members of people who have lost people to gun violence, they feel that as well. And they feel, you know, one of the mothers who uh, really has spearheaded um, the creation of this park, um, Marlene Miller-Pratt, um, her son died about 20 years ago, and um, I was talking with her recently, and she was saying how, you know, when her son was shot, the news, you know, called him a drug dealer. Um, and he had never done drugs before. He had never dealt drugs before. And they actually, she wrote them a letter and had them print a retraction. Um, but that's the default, you know, is that the story that the news plays about chronic urban violence is that it's related to gangs and drugs and and they don't necessarily talk about the human toll that it takes on a community and on individuals in the same way that they talk about mass shootings um which going back to kind of you know how does this affect policy and I think what it uh what it means is that there's less momentum less goodwill to enact the policies that would affect inner city New Haven as opposed to preventing, uh, you know, massacres like the Newtown shooting, which, you know, those are, I think those are both parts of um, the gun violence epidemic that should be addressed. Um, uh, but for example, you know, an assault weapons ban wouldn't really affect the patients that I take care of or the people that are shot and killed here in New Haven. That's not to say that that's not a very important part of preventing gun violence and particularly right. preventing mass shootings, but it's uh, it's a it's addressing a different problem, and we talk about it as if it were the same problem. Mm -hmm. um, right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your insight, mm -hmm. um, and I'm really excited about your work and looking forward to seeing where this continues to go and good luck with your PhD. <laughs> thank you so much and thank you so much for having me. Yes, it was a pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script. <laughs>